Hello there. Uh, welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Wasim Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Professor Matthew Cobb. Matthew Cobb is a professor in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Manchester, where he studies olfaction, uh, that is, uh, sense of smell. Uh, he also studies uh, insect behavior uh, and the history of science. Today we are going to discuss his new book, uh, Smell, a very short introduction. Uh, Matthew, thank you very much uh, for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much for having me. Matthew, you say in the book that smell is perhaps the oldest of all other senses. Why did sense of smell emerge and evolve so early in the history of species? Well, I think the first thing to, to realize is that the sense of smell probably isn't what you and the listeners think of it as. So probably most people, if I said, well, what's the sense of smell? They'd say something like, well, it's detecting smells. And I'd say, well, what's that? And they'd say, well, they're molecules in the air. Uh, and it's at that point that uh, if you were on one of my students, you'd fail the course that I teach uh, if you wrote that in the exam. Because... Uh, lots of animals and lots of organisms smell and smell is basically the detection of the chemical structure of molecules in a medium and that doesn't mean to say they're necessarily in the air so fish have a sense of smell bacteria have a sense of smell so basically our understanding is that the earliest forms of life will have had to be moving around uh, up and down gradients of nutrients or resources or even something that they may find problematic like carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide dissolved in the water and they will have been moving along these gradients and to do that they need to be able to detect those molecules to be able to change their position in space and they will have done that through what can generally be called a sense of smell. Another uh, interesting point uh, that you make about uh, the sense of smell is that uh, this is a fundamental sense uh, for all animals. But we know uh, far less uh, about this sense uh, than uh, what we know about uh, vision, touch, taste uh, or hearing. Uh, why do we know uh, so little about sense of smell as compared to our understanding of the other senses? I think part of the problem is that for a long time, neuroscientists couldn't really find a way to get at the fundamental mechanisms uh, of what was going on. So when I started uh, studying uh, olfaction or the sense of smell uh, in the 1980s, we were a pretty small group. Uh, there were a few hundred researchers around the world interested in it, and that was about it. And the, the most advanced ways that people had of uh, understanding the sense of smell, how it actually works, were either by putting electrodes into the neurons that actually detect the, the, the smells or by doing some complicated biochemistry to see what were the processes that were involved when those odors were detected. And the big change came uh, in 1991 when two researchers called Linda Buck and Richard Axel published an article in which they thought, they argued, they didn't prove, they hoped they had found the genes that encode the receptors that detect odors uh, in rats. Uh, as it turned out, they were right. Uh, and in 2004, 2006 maybe, in 2006, I think, uh, they won the Nobel Prize uh, for their discovery. And basically that finding opened the floodgates to the molecularization of uh, the study of olfaction using all the modern tools uh, of molecular genetics. But beyond this kind of technical question, there's a much more interesting conceptual problem. And you can probably work, work this out if you just think, well, how do I describe a smell? What terms am I going to use? What, what's the dimensionality of smell? because we know what the dimensionality of sound is, for example. It's to do with wavelength, which translates as pitch in our ears, and it's to do with intensity. So the size of the, the, the pulses of sound that are coming, moving through the medium. Similarly with vision, 
at least at the initial stages, we know exactly its dimensionality and it's the same thing. It's to do with wavelength and it's to do with intensity. How that then gets turned into a visual image in your head is rather a different matter. But in terms of understanding how quite primitive organisms, simple organisms can process visual signals, it's relatively straightforward. Even touch is relatively straightforward. Taste as well. And smell is different. And if you think about it, in most languages, the words we use to describe smell are other smells. So we say, well, it smelled kind of orangey. It smelled kind of lemony. There are some exceptions to this. Uh, in English, you have words like musty, dank, which are referring to very specific uh, odours. Uh, but in general, we need to talk about other 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 smells and that's telling us something about the difficulty there is of actually identifying that dimensionality and that problem leads on to a whole set of computational even conceptual problems about how on earth the brain is processing this complexity which we at the moment have a very great difficulty in describing before uh, we discuss that how uh, animals uh, uh, sense and perceive uh, smell, let us discuss what exactly is smell. Smells are carried by molecules. Uh, talk to us about various component atoms of these molecules. Uh, talk to us about the composition and the structure of these molecules uh, which seem to be linked with uh, how we perceive uh, smell? Well, <laughs> uh, the answer to how this, what smell is and how it works was, as in most things, discovered by the ancient Greeks. Uh, so Democrates, who was one of the first atomists, that means that he thought that all matter is made of atoms. Clearly, he didn't have the same conception of an atom as we do, but he considered it to be a fundamental particle of existence. And Democrates, around uh, about two and a half thousand years ago, was sitting under his olive tree, drinking his retsina, looking over the uh, Aegean Sea. And he was thinking, well, OK, if everything is made of atoms, then smells must be made of atoms. So how could that work? And he said, well, basically, I think that a nice smell must have a kind of round atom. And an unpleasant, acrid smell must have a kind of pointy one. And that's basically it. I mean, we don't know, there, but there are rules underlying the way that molecular structure, because that's all a smell is, it's a molecule. It may be in the air or it may be in water, but it is a molecule that is carried by a medium. And the organism that detects it is able to perceive various components of that molecular structure and respond accordingly. Now, in terms of humans, we know that adding a single carbon can change the perception of a particular odor. So what that's telling us is, that, I mean, we people generally think we have a very poor sense of smell, but if we were doing this live, I would give you two alcohols one heptanol, which has got seven carbons. So basically it's a zigzag of seven carbons with an alcohol group at the end, an OH group. And heptanol has a particular smell. It tends to smell uh, quite orangey. If you add one carbon to that, so it's now octanol, so it's got an extra carbon in it. It's just one atom of carbon longer. It smells different. And if I had a, the two odours here, I could give them to you and you'd be able to say, yes, this latter one smells a bit more woody. It smells a bit orangey, but it's also got this extra bit to it. And so that's telling us there's something constant in that there's this kind of orangey smell at, for those for alcohols of a particular length. But there's also something specific we are detecting. And that shows you that our sense of smell can detect single atoms of carbon, the difference in a single atom of carbon, which is pretty small. So far from having a really poor sense of smell, we've got an atomic sense of smell. We can detect the smallest conceivable differences uh, in molecules. Now, most of the molecules that humans sense 
um, are organic molecules. They've got they've got carbon in them. That's most of the things that that we can smell. Um, but different organisms with different ecosystems are able to detect a whole range of different odors. Uh, this nicely brings us to my next uh, question. Uh, different species of uh, animals uh, can detect different ranges uh, of uh, smell. Uh, no species can detect all smell-carrying molecules uh, that are uh, present in the environment uh, in which uh, it lives. Well, yeah, I mean, how many molecules are there? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're an infinite number. This is, goes back to the problem of the, the complexity of this, because the, the question comes, how many odors can a human detect? And for a long time, uh, the, the, the number that was banded around was 20,000. And about five years ago, some uh, researchers at Rockefeller University said, well, where do we actually get that number from? Um and nobody could tell them. And it just kind of appeared in the literature. And I, I remember telling people, yes, a really good, somebody who works for a perfumery, for example, which is called, they, those people are called noses and they're involved in creating new perfumes. Uh, they can detect 20,000 odors. But in fact, that number had no basis in scientific fact at all. So my colleagues, they tried to work out using a, a set of experiments and then some mathematical modeling, how many odors a human can detect. And the number they came up with was in the order of trillions of different odors. Now, of course, nobody was actually given a trillion smells and said, is this different from that? So it was a model. And the paper that they published in Science was uh, criticized by mathematicians who went, hey, you people don't understand anything about maths, to which the biologist replied, well, you people don't understand anything about biology, which is actually true. Um, whatever the limitations there may have been of the model, the fact is there is essentially, for all practical purposes, our sense of smell is infinite. There's no limit to the number of odors we can detect. And different organisms have slightly different needs to be able to detect different odors, and they can generally respond to uh, a different range of odors. We can see this in, uh, for example, animals like insects that live on a particular host plant. They need a particular plant. It has resources that they can acquire and they may specialize it. They may be the only insect, say, that can eat that particular plant or, it's, or can acquire nourishment from it. And they therefore have uh, evolved a set of processes for detecting the odors that are typical of that plant. That means that other even very closely related species are unable to do. So sense of smell is actually fundamental to driving biodiversity or it's a component of the drivers of biodiversity and underpins virtually every ecological relationship that there is on the planet. Let us uh, uh, dive deep now and uh, let us discuss uh, smell detection and perception mechanisms. How does the process of smell detection start? Uh, how do animals detect smell? Well, I can tell you how the process starts very early, but then we soon get into we don't know. And even when, even then, I mean, I'll explain, but there is a great deal of, that is still unclear, despite all the work that is done. Most listeners will think, well, I smell with my nose and I'm smelling odours that are in the air. Uh, and both those things aren't true. So the first thing is, you actually smell with your brain. And these are neurons uh, that are in a small patch of tissue that is very high up in your nasal cavity. In fact, it's at the base of your skull, underneath the what's called the cribiform plate, which separates your brain from your nasal cavity. So when you're actually smelling, the actual action, the actual Neuronal activity is taking place at about the level of your eye. It's very, very high up, not at all where you, you think it is. And what happens is that as you breathe in or as you sniff, then these odors, which are volatile, so they're floating around in the air, they migrate up towards, they pass over what's called the olfactory epithelium. Now, most people would imagine, well, OK, so you've got these things floating around in the air and then in some way they activate the neurons. Uh, but in fact, we don't actually directly detect odours in the air. And if you think about it for a minute, there's a very good reason, because any cell that is naked, that is directly in contact with the air, 
will die very, very quickly, shrivel up. So in fact, what happens is that our sense of our neurons are covered by a layer of mucus. And that then poses a major problem because most of the odors that I've described that we can smell are what are called hydrophobic. They don't like molecular and atomic terms. They don't like going through water. So we've got our olfactory neurons, their dendrites, which is the business end, the receptor end of the neuron, that's floating around in this mucus. And you've got your smells you want to be able to smell, which are on the other side of this aqueous barrier. So they've got to get through there. And at this point, there's a bit of an argument about what happens next. Um, the kind of school of thought that I tend to adopt focuses on what are called odorant binding proteins. And these are molecules that are in that mucus layer that every, every terrestrial organism has. So aquatic organisms like fish don't have this problem because their neurons can be in contact with the medium, the water, they're not going to die. So the odors then have to, they use these odorant binding proteins, which are like a chaperone. They're called a molecular chaperone. I, they will accompany the smell to the receptor and they go through, they go through this aqueous layer. They protect it from the atomic charges, which would otherwise repel these uh, hydrophobic molecules. And they also protect the odor from enzymes because you've got all sorts of stuff in this mucus layer for reasons that I'll explain in a minute. So these molecular chaperones then take the odor and they, we think, we they put it onto the receptor, which again, I'll explain in a minute, and that enables the neuron to respond. Now, there are a lot of problems with this. Um, in that some colleagues have done experiments where, for example, you can create an animal without any of these OBPs, the odorant binding proteins, or you can at least create a, uh, an, an experimental situation which you have neurons which will respond directly to odors. So it's possible that these OBPs aren't really necessary uh, for olfaction. I tend to be of the view that they are, but this remains to be resolved. Now, something else has got to happen before we describe exactly what's happening at the neuronal level. If you think about it, okay, so the, the, the smell is a bit like a, a key and the odors are, the, sorry, the smells like a key and the neuron is a bit like a lock. Let's just leave it like that at the moment. And the smell, the lock comes in, the key comes in and it turns the lock and you then smell something. Okay. But then you need to stop smelling because the, the molecule, the smell molecule's done its work. It's told you there's a smell there. So in fact, you have enzymes in this mucus layer that will then snip up the odors that you, ha you have just detected. And in fact, there are some odors that at least in mice, where we can do the experiments, we know they can't detect and yet they respond to. So there's a substance called benzaldehyde, for example, which is often used in experiments. But we now know that there are enzymes in the mucus layer of the mouse's nose that before that odor can actually get to the receptor, it's, it's, these enzymes snip up the molecule because it's actually quite damaging. So the poor old mouse can never actually smell this thing. What it's smelling is one of the breakdown products of this enzymatic activity. So I think what's interesting to think about there is that even before you are detecting anything, what is topologically speaking on the outside of your body, you've got this layer of activity, these odorant binding proteins, which seem to be uh, kind of making a selection of odors about what can be detected and what can't. And you've got these enzymes that are actually protecting your neurons from damaging effects of certain odors by snipping them up. So just like, in fact, your vision no matter what it looks like, isn't just a, a complete open to the to the world that, for example, you can't see ultraviolet light. Yeah, you can only see some parts of the visual spectrum. So too, our olfactory system actually selects before there is any detection of the odor. Now, what happens next is gets even more mysterious. I did say that we didn't really know. And then the easy bit is there are these molecules and they get into, into, into your olfactory epithelium. What happens next is 
undermines what I started off saying. So I said, well, the odor is like a, a, a the odor is like a, a key, and the receptor is like a lock. And if you take that analogy very strictly, then what that would mean is that each odor can turn a neuron, can make it respond, it binds in some way with the receptors on the outside of it, and then it fires. But we know, and we've known long before the molecular revolution in olfaction, that in fact, odor, odors can activate more than one kind of neuron, and each neuron can be activated by more than one kind of odor. So in fact, this idea of a lock and key is completely wrong because if if I try to open my front door with somebody else's key, it's not going to work. Each in, in in that metaphor, it's absolutely precise. Whereas in reality, the lock and the key are both a bit squishy and can not quite respond. And basically, what we're talking about is that is the efficiency of the binding of the molecule, the smell molecule or perhaps even a combined smell and OBP, we don't even know that. We don't know for sure that it's just the smell that's detected by the neuron. But there's a binding that takes place, and that binding can be absolutely precise or not quite precise enough, and that produces a change in the activity of the neuron. It does this in this way. So first thing is that we now know, subsequent to the work of uh, Buck and Axel, that each neuron, each olfactory neuron, just expresses one receptor type. Now you've got 400 genes, more or less, that encode receptors, olfactory receptors. Because you are a diploid organism, you've got genes from your mum and your dad, those, each gene for each kind of receptor may not be exactly the same from each parent. In fact, it almost certainly isn't, we now think. So in ways we don't fully understand, each receptor decides to express just one of those potentially 800 different genes. So each receptor, each neuron has got just one receptor type on the outside, and yet it can respond to lots of different odors. And it does this by binding the binding that takes place, the molecular binding, which again, we don't understand how that takes place. There's a lot of argument about what goes on, but it's something to do with the structure. We're back to uh, Democrates. There's something about the molecule, molecular structure of the receptor that it enables to detect, is this odor round or is it pointy? I'm being facetious, but you know, there's something about the, the shape of the mo smell molecule that enables the receptor to respond. And the receptor is not, what it does is to change its shape. And depending on the kind of animal you're talking about, that through various uh, bits of biochemistry within the cell, then leads to what's called depolarization, which is the basic activity of all neurons. And it sends a response down the neuron down to the next level. But that response is not simply switch it's not an on or off it's not digital and work in my lab and others has shown that in fact different odors with the same receptor can induce the neuron to do different things they can may have a very simple on off response sometimes the neuron will actually go completely quiet so as in most sensory neurons, olfactory neurons send a regular signal. They have spontaneous activity. They just regularly say to the brain, hey, I'm here. But some odors will make that neuron go completely quiet for several seconds. You blow an odor over for one second and the neuron just shuts down. So we've got activation and then complete silence. We've got no change. So the spontaneous activity continues. So even a, a non-response is informative to the brain. We've also been able to show in my lab uh, with my colleague, Catherine, Catherine McCrowan, that the actual shape of the response can be, sometimes you get a kind of two humps as the neuron responds to the odor you've stimulated with it. So there's a temporal structure, which we've been able to show is actually significant in the response of the neuron. So I think the main thing to, to realize is that those 
four or perhaps at most 800 different types of neuron you got aren't just like 800 switches. They're not binary ons and offs. They are an incredibly complicated array of responses that are significant to the brain. And that also, you can start to see then how we could conceivably get that trillions number. If you've got 800 different kinds of neuron and each odor is activating some of those, a subset of those neurons, then in lots of different complicated ways, not just zeros and ones, then you've got this amazingly rich peripheral code, peripheral representation of your sensory world. And you can easily work out that very quickly, you know, potentially those that large number of neurons with the potential for combinatorial coding. So up to 800 types of response, or perhaps just one and all combinations in between. Basically, you've got an infinite number of combinations at the periphery for identifying particular odors. Matthew, uh, we have just discussed how smell molecules are detected and sensed. Now, once a smell has been sensed, uh, this information is sent to the brain. What happens then? Uh, do we know uh, neural correlates of uh, uh, sense of smell? Hmm. Well, we've, we've got a very good idea about the early processing, but uh, neural correlates of perception, that's a hard one because the only, you really need to ask a human about that. <laughs> and our understanding of uh, olfaction in humans is pretty poor. Even our neuroanatomy is poor. But I'll describe the, the generic situation and then explain what the problems are about humans. So we've known for a long, long time that each of those neurons, I said earlier on, that each neuron only has one kind of receptor on, on its membrane. And it's been long known that all the neurons with the same kind of receptor go to the same place in the brain. So the first staging post on the other side of your cribiform plate, which is where those neurons are dangling down, the first synapse, the first connection is between neurons that share a common receptor. They're basically identical. So this is a bit like an amplifier. All of your neurons that can detect a particular set of odors because they share the same receptor go to the same place and they form this kind of ball-like structure called a glomerulus. And these glomeruli are connected together. They have neurons that enable them to talk to each other. That mean that they can keep the next one, the one next door quiet. So you can some neurons, some glomeruli will respond very quickly and they then shut down the neuron next door, the glomeruli next door saying, look, I'm listening. This is my odor. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the neuron. I represent the neuron. It can really tell you whether this is significant. You lot just keep quiet. And so they diminish the activity. So you get a, a refinement of the peripheral signal at the first staging post. And uh, there are a whole set of neurons. And what's very striking is that this organization at the first level of the cerebral processing or brain processing, this, uh, this organization is the same in all animals. If you've got a brain, then you have this organization in your brain, despite the fact that there's a big argument about whether all brains are homologous. So is my brain and a fly's brain, are they, do they have the same evolutionary origin? It's an argument about this. And despite the fact that the way that my neurons work and a fly's neurons work are completely different. They have different, the neurons are different. They have different receptors, completely different. Um, despite that, you have the same structure. So either this is telling us that this structure goes way, way deep in the evolution history of evolution, it's a conserved structure, or, and I think people are starting to think this a bit more now, it's actually an example of parallel evolution. Of so, It's actually an example of convergent evolution. That is, the world 
is posing different animals the same problem. How are you going to process these complicated chemical signals? And they've all come up with the same solution. So the same thing as you know, lots of different animals have wings, but they're not, they don't share a common answer. A bat and a fly has a wing. They can both fly. They obey the laws of, 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 of aerodynamics, but they don't have a common ancestor that had wings. So you've got this very similar structure. Not only similar, it looks similar, but you've got a computational similarity of inhibition, of activation, and of neurons refining this earliest signal at the very first staging post of the brain. Something else happens, again, common to all animals. Basically, as soon as this initial identification has taken place, because we think that's what's happening, and it can happen within 100 milliseconds of you blowing a smell over an animal's nose, you get a, an activation in the glomerular region. You then get a splitting of the signal. Two things then happen. A set of neurons take that response, that, that, that signal away to uh, parts of the brain that are, govern a response. So is this a nice smell? Is it a nasty smell? Is it, in some cases, what's called a pheromone? So a biological signal indicating uh, sex, availability, uh, warning, all sorts of chemical meanings that uh, these signals may have. So you, it goes off to, signal goes off to one part of the brain where you are going to decide what to do about this thing you've just smelt. The other part, and I think this is what people generally find quite intriguing and quite resonant with their everyday experience, it goes into memory. So the different memory structures that different animals have, we now know that often these areas of the brain and these memories are in fact tagged with smells. So the things that are happening to you, which in some cases are really quite detailed, what we can remember, are tagged with the smell that is happening to you at the same time. And this is probably why all of us would have been able to think of an example of this. You smell to smell and bang, you are back. Often it's a childhood smell. Often it's deep, deep in your memory. You may not have thought of the smell of your grandmother's cooking. And suddenly you smell that smell, it may be a fruit, it may be the particular spice or whatever. And there you are, you are back at your grandmother's, in your grandmother's kitchen, you know, you are at her knees. So this is a memory of that being in that position. It's not just a vague memory. Oh yeah, my grandmother used to use that spice. You are actually there. And the whole set of this memory, what's called redintegrative memory, is now reconstructed. And the very famous example, literary example of this uh, is in the beginning of uh, Proust's where he says, uh, or his character recalls being with his aunt when he was smelling and tasting a particular uh, kind of cake called a madeleine. And uh, he dunks this into his, uh, his tea and he tastes it and smell and taste are very, very intertwined. And poof, he says, the memory unfolded in my mind like a Japanese paper flower in water. And I think that, I mean, that's very poetic and some neuroscientists get very cross about this, but I, I think as a literary device and a literary recollection of what it's like for all of us to have that experience, I think it's very striking. So identification of odor leads to two things, decide what to do about it. And then whatever's going on about, you tag it with memory, with your smell in memory, but also it can then be, you may be consciously wanting to recall that memory, consciously, I don't know. Uh, it may be more deliberate process uh, than this kind of passive, whatever's going on, I'll stick this memory, this smell tag uh, onto the memory. Uh, you have uh, briefly touched upon this a few moments ago. Uh, Animals uh, use a sense of smell to interact uh, with other animals uh, and to interact with their environment uh, to convey and to receive various uh, messages. Uh, how much do we know about uh, these aspects of uh, sense of smell? Well, we've all seen dogs. <laughs> dogs urinate uh, and they then go and smell each other's urine. They smell each other's bottoms. What's so clearly from just everyday experience, you can see 
that animals are using chemical signals of some kind for identifying who knows. What's striking is that we've no idea what those chemical signals are, despite a lot of researchers being interested in dogs because they like dogs and a lot of interest in uh, the sense of smell, exactly how dogs are able to identify what odors they're identifying, indeed what they're identifying. I mean, on an anecdotal level, it looks like they're identifying individuals and maybe themselves, I don't know, but we don't actually know any of that. It's complete mystery at the moment. Um, but we do know that animals use identified odors that we know a great deal about uh, for, uh, in particular, for, for, for identifying sexual um, fertility, whether an animal, in particular a mammal, uh, is uh, in heat, is ready to mate. And anybody who's been in the country uh, will have seen uh, horses, goats, uh, and other uh, mammals doing what's called Fleming behavior. So this isn't a, a, a video, so I can't show you, but basically uh, what will happen is that in particular, the male animal will peel back the, his lips and will do a strange kind of behavior. If you've got a cat, uh, you've probably seen your cat doing this uh, when uh, if you have a, a misfortune to have a male tomcat come into your house and leave his mark, a spray, then your cats will go up to the smell and will produce this very strange behavior called flemen, which is clearly different from ordinary uh, smelling because when you, if you've got a cat, it, it kind of goes into the zone. It, it, it looks like it's somewhere else completely. Uh, and big cats do this and lions do this as well. And this is using a parallel olfactory system uh, called your vomeronasal organ, which humans don't have. And the vomeronasal organ, which is very, very, very significant, for example, in reptiles, uh, is often thought or has long been argued to be the kind of pheromonal processing pathway as against the general olfactory uh, pathway, which is your nose. We now know that's not true. And many pheromones, these chemical signals, are also detected in animals by uh, their main uh, olfactory system. We know a great deal about pheromones uh, in insects, and it's insect, in insects where it's been uh, the most intensely studied, and I spent a, a lot of my career uh, studying these these pheromones. And at this stage, a lot of the words that we use start to break down uh, between the difference of sense of smell and difference of sense of taste. So for example, the sense of smell, we would generally define it as being detecting at a distance, whether you're uh, a land, an air breathing organism or a, an aquatic organism, it's smell at a distance. Whereas uh, for a lot of uh, insects, olfaction takes place, or, Pheromone detection takes place in incredibly close range. I mean, obviously they're very small, so they can be very, very close and still not quite in contact. Um, and it's more a kind of mix between smell and taste because taste is basically the contact detection uh, of particular uh, chemicals. But we know a great deal about uh, pheromones in, in insects and clearly it's used in uh, trying to stop pests. So you can trap moths, for example. Uh, basically you put out a... Uh, a sticky substance covered with a female pheromone and the male moth thinks it's going to uh, mate and so it flies in and then uh, latch gets stuck. Uh, predators do this too. So there's something called the bolas spider in Latin America, which uh, instead of spinning a web, uh, it spins a long thin thread with a blob of web sticky webness at the end and this is impregnated with chemicals which imitate the pheromones of many female moths and he the spider then whizzes this thing round like a bolas uh, around its head or in the air and the male moth smells this and thinks whoa here we go i'm in luck tonight um and then unfortunately he ends up at the, the spider's dinner so Chemical communication is incredibly important, but what that also sh shows us is that if you're sending out, if you're using signals, then other organisms can eavesdrop and gain advantage and either imitate your signal through the slow, slow processes of natural selection um, or home in on it and decide, okay, well, you're producing this smell. I'm going to eat you because I can now detect you. And do plants uh, uh, use uh, similar mechanisms? Yeah, the plants use use odors and pheromones in two ways. Firstly, uh, it, odors for uh, pollination. 
So if you think about it, there's this very, very tight link between the evolution of flowers, which use uh, these particular plants that use these particular structures to attract uh, insect pollinators, and the evolution in particular of the butterflies and the moths. And butterflies and moths have a very wide range of receptors uh, that enable them to detect particular scents that are produced. So basically what's happening is that the uh, insect is getting a reward because in the flower is some, uh, normally, uh, in most cases, is a uh, is some nectar, some sugary juice. And the animal is going to associate the smell with the juice. So it's getting a reward and it, that will increase its attractive, its attraction to that particular uh, odor. So a key part of pollination, there is some innate preference of insects to particular uh, odors, but above all, it's learned. The animals are learning. So in fact, the whole of pollination, most of our ecosystem is based on insects learning to associate particular smells with a nectar reward. Now, sometimes, uh, the plants cheat. So there are various orchids uh, that don't produce any nectar at all and still attract pollinators. And they do this by producing a pheromone or a compound that is like the pheromone, either a sex pheromone. So the, 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 the orchid smells like a particular uh, female bee. Or in the case of one uh, bit like a daffodil that's found in China, it produces an odor that is like the alarm call of bees. And that's useful because hornets, Asian hornets, we now know attack bees and they detect the alarm call of the, the bee. So the bee, if, when, a, when bees are, are frightened, they produce an odor, which gets everybody, all the bees very excited. The hornets have learned to home in on that because that means there's bees about. And now the daffodil kind of plant imitates the bee's alarm call. Your poor old hornet is smells this, thinks, my God, there's a, a hive of bees there, pounces on the plant, on the flower. There's nothing there. It gets covered in pollen. It kind of bemused, shakes its head and goes off because it can't find any bees. And then it, the same thing happens again. So there's this cycle of deception, uh, of... Uh, of camouflage, of pretending to be something else. Plants also produce odors that are proper pheromones. They produce chemical signals that tell the plants next door there's something bad going on. And you can do this experimentally. If you clip uh, particular plants, then plants, this produces volatile odors that actually alters the genes that are being produced in the plants next door. They don't even have to be the same species. So again, it's a bit like an alarm call. If you think of uh, things like uh, blackbirds or other birds that will make an alarm call if there's a predator about and everybody gains benefit from it, even if they're not the same species. Plants do the same thing. They actually send out an alarm call which changes the uh, genes that are being produced in neighboring plants, enabling them better to resist uh, the attacks of predators like insects. So we would demonstrate that experimentally by clipping the plants with scissors, but clearly normally it happens because there's a grazing mammal about or there's a set of caterpillars. And this inadvertent, it's not, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a signal that is produced by the activity of the predator. So the predators can't do anything about it. It's simply what, what is, it says, hey, I'm being eaten. And neighboring plants are able to recognize that and make an, adapt, an adaptation of their physiology in consequence. So, Matthew, the way various animals uh, use a sense of smell to interact with other animals, uh, plants also use sense of smell to interact with other plants. Various species, various life forms use smells to send and receive signals. It seems that all life forms on Earth uh, live in an ecosystem of smells and uh, you talk about this in your book as uh, ecology of uh, smells. Yeah, it's absolutely fundamental that uh, virtually all ecological reaction interactions are based at some point or another on chemicals 
in the environment, enabling species and individuals to respond appropriately, either to take advantage or to find a mate or whatever. And that's primarily the case in animals, but it's also true in bacteria uh, and plants, fungi, and so on. And really, the whole world is based on smell. I mean, it's it's not something that um, I think many biologists really realize. Uh, there's a whole branch of something called chemical ecology in which people use uh, chemical devices, uh, analytical devices to identify the odors that are produced, the pheromones that are produced, and trying to understand the interactions that, that take place. But this can sometimes be absolutely extraordinarily intricate. So for example, um, you may know that there are caterpillars uh, that get parasitized by wasps. This is one of the things that convinced Darwin that there was no God because it was just so horrible. So basically what happens, you've got a caterpillar and a wasp will come along and lay an egg inside the caterpillar and that egg then hatches and eats the caterpillar from the inside. Uh, now, how does the wasp know how to find the caterpillar? Well, the wasp finds this out by uh, detecting the smell of the caterpillar's saliva on the plant. So the caterpillar is eating the plant and it then regurgitates its food, doesn't eat it all, and the wasp hones in on that. Okay, now, so far so bad. It then gets worse because there are thing called, things called hyperparasitoids. And hyperparasitoids aren't interested in the caterpillar. They want to lay their egg inside the wasp caterpillar, which is inside the butterfly caterpillar. And they detect that because when a wasp has been, uh, a caterpillar has been parasitized by one of those wasps, the wasp inadvertently injects a venom, that's the point, into the caterpillar, but it inadvertently injects a virus and this changes the smell of the caterpillar's saliva. So your hyperparasitoid can detect the difference between a caterpillar that's just an ordinary caterpillar and a caterpillar that has had an egg laid in it. Because the caterpillar is still alive. It's, walk, it's walking lunch, basically, for the, 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 the wasp that's inside it, the baby wasp that's inside it. But the hyperparasitoid now wants to lay its eggs inside that. So this involves... Be able to be able to do this involves the caterpillar, the plant that it's eating, the wasp that's inside it, and the virus that was injected with the venom when it had the wasp laid inside it. And the hyperparasitoid can detect all that. And that just gives you some idea of the incredible intricacy of olfaction and its role in, in, in our ecosystems. This is uh, fascinating information. Uh, Matthew, humans have used uh, scents for thousands of years. Talk to us about the role of smell and scents uh, in human culture. Well, this was uh, something I didn't know a great deal about. And before I started writing my book, and uh, most of the book is based on a course that I, I do uh, at the University of Manchester on chemical communications in chemical communication in animals. So it was relatively straightforward to write. But I realized that I wanted to write exactly about the, the role of smelling culture. And this was the most fascinating uh, part of the, the book because it meant me, one, acquiring new knowledge, but also getting a, a deeper perception uh, of its role. And one of the things that struck me was, uh, I, I'm particularly interested, I have an amateur interest in uh, prehistoric cave art, in the art of uh, peoples long ago who left paintings, often uh, of animals and so on, on the walls of caves, but also uh, in rock shelters all over the planet. And it's very striking that uh, in Lascaux, which is one of the most famous places, it was discovered in France in 1940, this cave. Um, in Lascaux, we have been able to find the uh, lamps that they use to be able to light their work. And these lamps had were made of animal fat. And the animal fat had as a wick juniper or pine needles and i read that and i thought that must have smelt amazing because there are lots of different sticks they could have chosen but they chose these smelly pine and juniper to give the extra tang to so if you imagine they're in this cave underground and who knows what for what reason 
And the sounds are really important. We know that from the structure of the caves, but the smell was important. So you would have the smell of the people. You would have had the sound, the smell of the cave, quite dry, not damp. You would have the kind of fatty animal fat, bacony smell of the, of the, the animal fat. And then the juniper or the pine would have added an extra tang to this. So right from some of the earliest artistic creations we've ever made, smell has been completely intertwined in it. And we can see this in religions, which use incense or so on, lots of traditions of uh, uh, smell in different cultures. And people use smell to identify others in particular. So othering, as sociologists would call it, often gets associated with smell. So uh, I lived a long time in, 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 in France and uh, it was in about 2000, 1998 or something like that. Jacques Chirac, uh, the French uh, president, he, uh, he made a comment about the smell of immigrants. And uh, that's just absolutely typical. So other people always smell if you've got a if you've got a prejudice against them then you will use smell as a, a reason to dislike them and it's very striking that in uh memoirs of the the raj the time when britain uh dominated india the britons all thought that the indians smelt horrible and the indians all thought that the brits smelt horrible everybody agreed the other the others smell horrible so it, it's used all the time in, in culture, but it's had particularly significant role in uh, the role of perfume, uh, in the religion, as I say, has been very, very significant and in culture as well. So probably the first novel that was ever written uh, is uh, a Japanese novel written about a thousand years ago. And smell plays an absolutely fundamental role in structuring this novel and the story that goes on. And indeed, in Japan, they still have, uh, it's still very, very significant. There are games that people play, identifying particular odors uh, and so on. So different cultures have got different attitudes to smell. And in the West, we've got quite kind of scared of it. Um, and we wash ourselves manically. Uh, we're worried about BO, body odor and, and brilliant from the advertiser's point of view they came up with this bo so awful you can't even name it you have to use the initials so we're all terribly worried about this um but that i think just illustrates quite how significant uh smells are uh in our in our everyday life and our culture and so on and uh why and this is particularly significant at the moment with the the, the covid uh pandemic it's been recognized that Losing your sense of smell is one of the early symptoms. It took a long time for the, the, the medical community to accept this. Um, olfactory researchers were shouting about it from the very beginning because they noticed that people were talking about it, saying, well, I've, I've lost my sense of smell. When you do lose your sense of smell, if you lose it permanently, it can be absolutely devastating because if you just think of, you know, the smell of your loved one, the smell of your child, those are really important things. It's being able to cook tasting because taste although taste is a separate sense and is kind of like five to seven to eight basic dimensions flavor what you get when you eat is much much richer and you can people can test this by getting a, a sweet uh eating it holding their nose and shutting their mouth and they won't be able to taste much as soon as they take their fingers off their mouth then woof, you suddenly get this full flavor. That's because most of our flavor, sense of flavor is based on smell. It's a mixture of smell and taste. So if you lose your sense of smell, your sense of taste becomes extremely reduced. And many people who've had COVID have reported that, you know, they didn't particularly notice the loss of sense of smell, but it was their loss that they were eating stuff and it no longer tasted of anything. So in general, the medical community, as I said, in the past has been quite dismissive of the sen losing the sense of smell and said, well, yeah, uh, there's not much you can do about it, which in general is true. But people who have lost their sense of smell through injury or disease, uh, I mean, thankfully, with most people with COVID, it seems to be that they recover their sense of smell quite quickly. But some people will lose it, I expect, lose it forever. 
there at the very least being able to talk to other people who've had the same experience is extremely important so there are a whole number of charities around the world uh, in the uk there's something called fifthsense.org.uk uh, and that's one of the they work with researchers in america as well and i'd urge any listeners who've lost their sense of smell or who have a loved one or a friend who's lost their sense of smell go on the go on the internet find fifth sense or something else called absent a b s c e n t and they have various approach well, they've got support for a start there's help you may be able to get and there's something called smell training you can do which can gradually uh, recover some element of your sense of smell if you're so unlucky as to have lost it Matthew uh, we are uh, discussing uh, your book uh, smell uh, a very short introduction uh, we have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book is there anything else that you suggest uh, we should discuss before we close this discussion uh, anything that uh, i might have uh, overlooked Well I think there's one obvious question that I I didn't broach uh but which I'm sure a lot of listeners will be thinking about we talked very briefly about uh about pheromones about chemical signals uh in uh, in animals and humans are animals so the question obviously arises do humans have pheromones and the very short answer to that is there is no proof of any pheromone in humans uh there are products that you can buy that claim to be sex pheromones uh these are the same for men and for women so it clearly isn't a sex pheromone and there's a huge genetic variability in our ability to detect this odor and even to respond for it to it so although this is often used in experiments uh it is not a pheromone it is not a human pheromone there's i think that is very clear there have been various claims to be pheromones for example uh there's a study from 1999 which um showed that you could get changes in the menstrual sh- cycle in women's menstrual cycle if you uh these women were given uh little bits of cotton wool uh to keep under their armpit and then these bits of cotton wool were they given to other women who then slept with this taped under their nose nobody knew what the experiment was about and this study of about 20 women uh showed apparently showed uh, a shift in the menstrual cycle depending on what the phase of the menstrual cycle the donor was in so it seemed to be this synchrony which a lot of women uh who live together will report anecdotally that their menstrual cycles tend to synchronize now there's been a, an incredible amount of research on this over 20 years later there has been no replication of the study which i think is particularly significant there has been no identification of the odor and there have been a lot of studies which have gone you know what this is just uh one over interpretation of the statistics and the anecdotal evidence is just that it's just people noticing coincidences um and i've kind of changed my views when i when it 20 years ago i taught this on my course and used it as an example a very intriguing example now i still teach it but i say this is an example of over interpretation and let's look at the problems with it bang 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 so despite our perhaps it's very interesting i don't know why people want there to be pheromones uh but there is no evidence even something uh for example in uh some animals like rabbits there's a nipple search pheromone so um, a baby rabbit has to be able to latch onto its nipple very very quickly because the mother only spends a couple of minutes a day with it in the burrow and so it's really important you've got to find the nipple and then get onto it and get as much milk as possible so people have been looking to see whether humans produce uh something similar but clearly our eco ecology is very very different i mean you know we evolved to walk around with our babies and babies were there all the time so we're not rabbits uh and nothing has yet been found and it may well be that our uh, mating systems and our behavior is so complicated that uh we don't know we don't need uh we don't need that kind of chemical signal that having been said you know the smell of a beautiful perfume or the smell of an under individual i'm sure we've been all been there you smelt somebody and you thought god they smell amazing that must be a pheromone well maybe it's not maybe it's just a nice smell you like 
Professor Matthew Cobb, uh, thank you very much uh, for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. It's been great to be here. I hope everybody's been uh, interested and excited. And there have been a few things in there that can have rung bells or rung smells in uh, people's everyday experience. Thank you and uh, goodbye. Bye bye.